Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And this week we were looking ahead and we saw, hey, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is coming out. Um, that's kind of a interesting superhero ensemble movie. So we thought, hey, let's do ensemble movies today. So that's what we're yeah. doing. Yeah, it seemed a fun, less obvious tie-in for the new movie instead of just locking us down to, like, superhero stuff or space movie stuff. Um, this kind of reflects the appeal of what the Guardians movies does, but also gives us a broad enough uh, spectrum that we could bring in really all sorts of different stuff. Um, although I know one of your picks didn't stray too far from... <laughs> no, I decided to pay some homage, so... I mean, it makes sense, you know, you're... You're thinking in terms of branding, timing, marketability, <laughs> SEO terms. That's what uh, I do. I can respect it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> they, that's why they call you Algorithmic Ian, you know? Yeah, you just, that's what they do. <clears throat> you're down with the numbers. Um, yeah. This was kind of difficult to initially come up with a list. It took me a long time just because it's harder to like sort your letterbox by genre for this genre. <laughs> Because there's not really that category, really so um, I don't know about how you approached it. My end, I ended up having this kind of rule though, where I thought of taking ensemble to something of an extreme of like movies where you could argue there isn't really one central protagonist. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Which, like, one of all of them, you could argue there is one, and this is who it would be. But it really is more this eclectic. Uh, gathering of characters than it is any one central figure um which was my way of approaching this and that way like because technically like any movie with a big cast you could argue is an ensemble but i thought no like really the purest kind of ensemble even more than guardians for example because guardians peter quill's pretty clearly the main character not these bad boys <laughs> yeah i think point of view comes into play a lot too right so if you've got multiple characters that are clearly have a point of view in the story that's being told i think that's a pretty clear indicator as well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. i honestly just scoured through my collection and just picked out the movies that would fit mm -hmm. yeah, that's fair <laughs> that's what i did it's a simple method but it's reliable it works i feel like that's what we, you do for every one of our topics really uh yeah <laughs> basically <laughs> it kind of is i won't lie i do that i mean i ask my wife and then, yeah. Nice. That's what I do. I mean, if you got a collection, what else are you going to use it for? You right. know, like, that's one of the perks. <laughs> it works. So, wait, are all these movies in your collection? Uh, no. Actually, no. <laughs> Only one of them is. <laughs> wow. You're a liar. <laughs> I'm not. How did um, you generate those picks if they're not in your collection? I can think outside the box sometimes. On occasion, that doesn't seem right. Well, one is in one is in Kimberly's collection. If that makes any oh, difference, of course, but yes, you your, already your dual collections. You, you already think that that's weird that we have separate collections. So I get it. I just find it. I <laughs> it seems like it would be difficult to maintain. It's not. I know it is though because you have that Back to the Future snafu. That's isn't true. It? Yeah, there is some problems. See, that's where the difficulty comes in. The crossover area, you know. It's fine if, like, 
one of you is into like I don't know superhero movies, and the other one of you is into like Italian neorealism, then yeah, those categories, you know, uh, the peanut butter does not touch the chocolate in that case. But when <laughs> there's a cross reference, then you get screwed up. Can I tell you a secret? I've been Can. buying the movies I want anyway. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell anybody. <laughs> That's I'll I'll keep that between us. That's how I handle it. I get it. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Well, should we jump into it? I can yeah, s- I, I can start so. with the movie that is actually in my collection. And that is 1994's Pulp Fiction. You may have heard of it. And now Pulp Fiction is one where it has like, it's the multiple stories. And each story does have a protagonist, but... I would say all three stories have a different central protagonist as well as a pretty big supporting cast. Um, so I think it fits. Yep. Um, so what moment do I want to talk about? I'm going to actually go down to the end of the movie, which is the diner uh, holdup scene. And with in the scene where like Ringo is trying to get the suitcase from uh, from Jules and Honey Bunny is is that the only name we know her by? Uh, Yolanda. Remember. Yolanda, right? Yolanda. Uh, he's Yolanda is has her gun on Sam Jackson and Ringo's got his and they've got their guns on each other. And partway through the scene, then John Travolta's Vincent shows up. And he's got his gun pointed at Yolanda, which is, you know, he does it very stealthily and they almost don't even notice he's there, but he's just got his gun on her. And so there's like this standoff happening and it's a pretty tense scene. And then they're kind of talking and, you know, Sam Jackson's Jules is speaking very calmly um, to Tim Ross Ringo and Basically, they got the whole wallet exchange. And he actually lets Ringo take his money out, which I think, if I remember correctly, is like $1,500. And he's like, you can take that. Just give me my wallet back. <laughs> and, and then Vincent just, ha- just has to say, Jules, if you give him that $1,500, I'm going to shoot him on general principle. Which <laughs> I like for a number of reasons. So the first one is that it's just funny. It's a funny line with a script that has a lot of funny lines. The second is it adds, it, it kind of layers the tension. It, it adds an extra layer of tension to a scene that's already pretty tense. Because now you've got, not only are they already freaked out, Yolanda especially, like she's freaking. Well, now you've got this very cool, calm hitman basically saying that he's going to shoot her boyfriend. So, yes, tension levels rise even more. Um, but I mostly love it because it's so in character for Vincent. It's a it's a great just character piece. It's one of those things that indicates we've spent this whole movie with these characters. We've gotten an understanding of them. And so a line like this from Vincent fits because he's a character that just can't stop himself from escalating a situation. Like we just saw that with uh, with him and the wolf, right? Where he's he's basically asking getting asking the the wolf character to say ask him to 
please to say please when you ask him to do something and you're like this isn't the guy you do that with but he will not back (laughs) down and he's doing it again here um i also like it because this is not even jules was jewel this is jules point of view this particular story it's his story but they're i mean they're a pair so they're in it together and vincent uh we saw through the first story it was his pov and so we've been with vincent for a lot i would say if pulp fiction has a single protagonist it would be john travolta he got the lead actor nomination yeah but i still think it fits for the ensemble i think so too yeah anyway he so we but we've been with him for he shows up in all three stories even though the second one is only for a little bit another moment where he's escalating a situation that didn't need to be anyway he uh I like it that it gives him something to do in the scene because the scene is very much these three characters. Um, but before the the holdup happens, like he's Vincent is in the bathroom. And so there's kind of like that unconscious, that subconscious feeling that you've got that like, okay, all this stuff is happening. And you're like, there's this piece in the back of your mind that remembers that Vincent is still out of the situation and you know, he's going to come back in the situation at some point. And when he does, like, this is his kind of little addition to just make things worse <laughs> at a pretty crucial time. Um, so I like it. I think it's a good character beat. I think it's um, it works for the tension of the of the scene. And, yeah, and it's a great line. It's a very funny line. It is very, very much Vincent. Yeah, um, I, I love the scene. I actually was just referencing it the other day. I can't remember the context, but this exact scene line and this exact scene and line came up uh and what i like too is like the specific uh the specific uh, phrase that vincent uses when he's talking about um the tim roth characters he calls them an effing nimrod and that makes it even better if you give that effing nimrod 1500 dollars, i'm gonna shoot him on principle like that was the correct two words for that character um and i think it's also an interesting example of how just between this and Reservoir Dogs, Tarantino grew so much as a filmmaker, not just the line, but the scene on, on the whole. Because um, as many people have pointed out, the Mexican standoff is like a recurring motif in Tarantino's movies. He always comes back to it. Even in Inglorious Bastards, where it's not really a Mexican standoff, he has that line about like, we got grenades, we throw them down here, you're dead, that's a Mexican stand- standoff. Like he always comes back to this uh, scene and this type of conflict. But in Reservoir Dogs, it's a pretty straightforward, like, it's it's an effective scene, but it's, like, it's very straightforward what each character wants and why they're pointing guns at each other. It's a pretty standard setup. And this scene is so much more specific and unique, where it's, like, you know, Jules is being robbed by this couple. He takes one of them at gunpoint, and then so the other thief's wife has him gunned down, but he's also really clearly, like, the one in control of the situation, and he's trying to get Vincent to just hang back. You know, the fact that it's something Gene Siskel pointed out, I think in an interview with Tarantino where he's like, or with, with Sam Jackson, where he's like, your character, you know, with a gun is, is trying to be a peacemaker. And it's this interesting scene where instead of like, where most Mexican standoffs, there's a lot of like bravado and chest pumping. This one is him. There is that element to it here too, especially with what is written on Jules's wallet. But the, (laughs) overall arc of the scene is like trying to defuse a hostile situation rather than you know blow your way through it 
And it's just such a more unique example of that kind of conflict. And I think it just is reflective of how, like, the gargantuan leap Tarantino made between movies, where you, it's still very much that voice, but it's so much more interesting and specific and unique in Pulp Fiction than it is in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, that's a good point. With Reservoir Dogs, it's more like, how cool is this and the scale that there's so many people mm-hmm. involved and... Um, and you're never really sure, like who's who's got their gun on who, and what exactly happened at the end. Like, there's it's still a little bit of a mystery. It's as true to too, yeah. Who actually shot who? Um, and it's more, yeah. I, I very much saw it as him being like, it would be so cool if it was like this. Uh, but there's definitely more purpose to this one. I would agree with you there. More purpose, and, and it takes you by surprise too, because when when he first starts quoting the Bible speech again, it's like. That the last time he quoted that speech was to, you know, wreck shop, and then, but it's building to this very different point. And of course, his delivery of that speech is so different than it is in the first. But when the scene first starts playing out, you're like, is he just going to blow these two away? And then it becomes clear that it's like it's not quite that. The way that it modulates between being um, tense and then really funny, and then strangely really sweet, like Amanda Plummer and Tim Roth, especially Amanda Plummer, like. There's a lot of sincere affection between the two of them in the middle of this scene. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, like, and it's kind of another little beat, but the cherry on top of this is after, you know, it's diffused, Jules puts his gun away, uh, Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer leave, like, sort of arms around each other. Um, I think Jules even takes another sip of coffee or another bite of his muffin, something like that, and uh, Vincent leans in and is just like, I think we should probably leave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... It's wonderful. Yeah. It's uh, it's in some ways the best example of like what Tarantino's talked about, of like kind of taking you for a ride where you're not the audience isn't expecting to go where he's going to take them. In some ways, it's one of the best examples of that in his entire career. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's he he's great at building characters that you care about, even if they're scumbags or not, and. Never, yeah, you're right. It's not like a telegraphed, this happens and this happens and this happens story. Like, I don't think anybody would have predicted where Bruce Willis's story <laughs> would have ended up when they first saw no. it. <laughs> For example. Um, and I mean, even though he teases what is going to happen in the diner, when they get to the diner at the end of the movie, you're not making that connection. Like, because A, it was so long ago and it's just... You haven't seen those characters mm. in a while. But then once once they suddenly stand up and you realize, oh, wait, this is the diner from the beginning. It's a very mm. cool like trigger in your brain. It's like, that's clever. I like what he did there. Well, I remember the first time I saw the film, I assumed as it proceeded from that opening scene that the diner was just to set up the basic tone and flavor of the movie. And that was literally all you were going to get with those characters. Um which would have been like enough in some ways because it is great on its own terms. But yeah, the fact that like, yeah, you go on such a ride that when you come back to it, it is a genuine swerve. Yeah. So. Yeah, good stuff. I can't believe we haven't brought up Pulp Fiction at all yet. <laughs> is this the first time? This is the first time we've talked about it, yeah. Wow. That is kind of mind-boggling. Um, especially because like, I know you're older than me, but we're close enough in age that, like, I think for we're part of that group for which Pulp Fiction is like a seminal, like, Definitely. turning point in our film cinephilia. Yeah. Um, so 
Yeah, it is kind of... We've talked about other Tarantino films a lot, I'm sure. I I know we've talked about Kill Bill. I'm sure we've talked about Bastards at some point. Maybe Um, not. I don't know. Well, we're talking about it next week. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) A little little sneak peek for what's coming forward. Um, And we talked about Django. Yeah. We talked about Hollywood. Yeah. That might be it. Hmm. Sorry, QT. <laughs> we do like you. We do. He's a podcaster too, so we're all three of us are pretty much the same. We're on the same level, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, cool. Well, I'll uh, counter with a film that is quite different in in many ways. It was a film that took me more time to love than Pulp Fiction, which was like an instant like. Especially like I think fourteen when I saw it, where it was like, oh, this is like exactly the right time to see that. Um, a film that I saw in undergrad and then only warmed to really fully a couple months ago. Federico Fellini's Amacord. Not the last film he made, but in many ways the sort of culmination of his career. It is uh, in in theme with what was the major preoccupation for so many movies made last year about a director reminiscing on their past and their upbringing um, in Italy. Now, the catch is his nostalgic remembrances of Italy, which Amacord translates to I remember. Um, He's remembering growing up in Mussolini-era fascist Italy. And that's an interesting tension that runs through the film where it is like one of the most nostalgic and joyful and evocative of this sort of time and place in terms of like nostalgic remembrances you will ever see it is so vibrant and lush and and beautiful to step into but it's also fascist italy and that sort of shroud of fascism is never far from what the film is doing even if ostensibly there's a lot of joy uh going on and that comes to play in my moment which is a scene where um the basic focus of the film is like this town and the sort of sprawling characters within it. And you can argue that the protagonist is this teenage boy named Tita, who's been speculated to be Fellini stand in. It's not exactly autobiographical, but it's a similar role. But at the same time, like he's not extremely well developed. And I wouldn't say he's necessarily the point of view character. There are plenty of scenes he's not in and plenty of uh, moments of interiority that he doesn't have access to that we do. Which comes to play for my moment here, which is involving not Tita himself, but one of his friends, uh, Chichio, who is this uh, sort of chubbier kid in school and spends most of the movie uh, sort of fixating on his crush, who I will just double check is named Aldina, and uh, sort of pining for her affection, but she's, you know, he's vulgar and he's not very attractive, so she's not interested in him. How, sorry, can I ask uh, how old these, like how old are we? The kids are? Yeah. They're teenagers. Okay. Like young teenagers, so like 13, 14, I think. Um, there's a, but there's a scene where uh, Chichio, they're at a parade, fascist parade, and Chichio starts fantasizing about um, marrying his crush, but they're still chill, like they're still teenagers in the fantasy. And it's this absurd sequence, and it's played as very comical and buffoonish, like the fact that the fantasy is not really coherent or sincere, it's very goofy. And then throughout it, there's this, like, ridiculous sort of um, image of Mussolini's face, like, in between them as they're being wed, that, like, is this cartoonish spectacle as part of the fantasy. 
And I love this for mainly for this weird tension that the film is playing with where on the one hand you could view this as being like super chilling the fact that it's like this goofy nostalgic uh joking around about this kid and this weird fantasy he has and how silly the whole thing is and yet fascism is like right there in the center of it the fact that it is so normalized that the fascist presence isn't seen in the context of the fantasy as being strange or obtrusive or like coming in and like making this moment dark for the moment in this fantasy for this kid it's just part of that world and it is this really stark depiction of how easy it is to normalize living under fascism where like yes you're living under a tyrannical regime and things are going to get worse but also life does kind of keep going on in ways that are pretty normal um in ways that are not too dissimilar from what non-fascist upbringings are like but on the other hand, there's also something kind of hopeful in that, too, that the fact that, like, in spite of that, these kids are still able to live their lives and still are able to, um, you know, have these normal, like, adolescent fantasies, have that upbringing not be completely thrown away because of the time they're living in. And there's even a subversive quality to it where the scene, in a way, is making a mockery of Mussolini in and of itself, that his image and his power is lowered to being a farcical spectacle in the midst of this, you know, teenager's horny fantasy. So there's this, and this is an interesting thing where Fellini's doing both at once and also kind of ruminating on that tension at the same time and doing it in a way that, like, it doesn't feel like he's giving a lecture. It's still a very playful scene. It's still very fun to watch, as is, you know, the rest of the movie, as is basically everything Fellini made. His movies are so vibrant and joyful. Um... But at the same time, it's like forcing you to really reckon with these images and their implications historically, uh, and I think that's fantastic. It's yeah, it's interesting exploring the idea of like a kid just growing up in the environment that they know. Um, I like that idea. It's kind of, it kind of reminds me, not really related, but I kind of reminds me of watching The Last of Us on HBO this year. Because there's definitely, they try to make a very distinct dif difference between the older characters that knew what life was like before the big pandemic. And then the main, like the main girl who's just lived in, the, in this basically dystopian world the entire time. And that's just her life. And they, um, so, so that's an interesting idea to explore. But I like that it's like we have such a connection to that because we know who Mussolini is and we, and we have, we know, understand how, what that time was like. So, um, I mean, it's equivalent to, you know, it could have been Hitler, right? That would be a little bit more inflammatory, but uh, it's the same idea. It's, mm -hmm. it's somebody, but Mussolini is not as well known. Like, I don't think that's an interesting quality though, because I was thinking about that, like for Westerners, it's very much the case that like, you know, the avatar of not just, European fascism in World War II, but fascism writ large is Adolf Hitler. But for Italian audiences, would, one wonders yeah. how how different that that feel is because right. it is like you know Fellini's making this film in like seventy three, so it is long after uh, both the fascist regime and after World War II. So there is like it's it's very knowing in what it's doing, um, but it's also just like it, it kind of leaves the commentary unspoken. And just lets the... In fact, like, except for one scene where uh, Tita's father is um, 
questioned by uh, the brown shirts, as it were. There's, like, no actual, like, violent fascist pre uh, presence in the film beyond, like, there's the parades and the pageantry, yes, and, like, there's an in implied violence in those, I think you could argue, but there's not, like, there's not an overt villain sort of stomping down on the characters. There's not overt acts of oppression. It's just weaved into the film so that no matter how playful it is, you, you never really forget that. And that's an interesting quality, too, because it's, it's called I Remember. It's a film that's from its title is courting that this is a movie about nostalgia it's not just nostalgic it is about that and the fact that it kind of is in some ways making an implicit point about how dangerous nostalgia is because you know we as an audience watching in 73 on can see clearly the, the fascist danger surrounding the characters that they are completely blind to especially the kids um and again that implicitly makes some commentary about the, uh, the the perils and danger of nostalgia, that it's so easy to romanticize a past, even when we historically and pretty <laughs> safely determine that past was shite and horrifying and not something worth romanticizing. Yeah. But it's so easy to. It, it really shows, like, Fellini as a master of his craft, especially in the fact that he puts a lot of confidence in... Um, using the audience's prior knowledge to give weight to things like that right so if he's if he is kind of making it more of a background idea like the balloon i mean if people don't know who mussolini is that means absolutely nothing and there's no weight to it whatsoever uh, but he's but he doesn't feel the need to be like oh look it's our <laughs> it's our former dictators like i would feel like a lot of movies now would have to spell that out um Mm -hmm. But it's a good show that he's got a lot of confidence in what he's doing by just, you know, relying on the audience to bring something to this as well. And in, mm -hmm. and in Italy, I mean, I, I say that Hitler is much more well known as a kind of this tyrannical figure than Mussolini, but that's not necessarily the case in Italy. Right? I would think you go to somebody on the street in Canada and ask them if they know what Mussolini looks like. Probably not. But Italian's probably still got a pretty solid idea. Like, he's probably a figure that's that's mm. uh, well-known. Yeah, and it's something, too, that, like, this scene comes, not, like, fairly, sorry, fairly early into the film, but also we've had scenes of, like, the children in their classrooms, for example, where the teachers spout fascist rhetoric to them. So it is something that, like, there's some build to to give context, but even in those scenes, like, the classroom scenes are... Part of what makes them great is the kids are like rowdy, disruptive, goofing off kids who aren't paying attention and are mocking their teachers and whatnot. And again, it's the attention of like, is this, you know, a subversive act of like, because it's not, they're not doing it for political reasons. They're just kids goofing off as kids are wont to do. And is that a comforting thing that even in the face of this of all evils, they're still able to bend the rules and break them and, and defy them? Or is it terrifying that they are so innocently unaware of how dangerous what they're being lectured with is. It kind of is interesting to compare to the opening of uh, Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers, where you've got 
they're older and they're played by actors in the like late 20s but you've got the high school class and the michael ironside's giving a lecture about you know the necessity of military might to solve all problems and naked force solves everything and denise richards and um casper van diem are like making little like kissy faces at each other and it's like in the context of that film obviously it's satire much more directly this isn't quite doing that same thing um but it is this idea of like these kids are so blind to how like insidious the ideas that are being peddled to them are they might not be just absorbing them like sponges like they ask rico in that scene do you believe this and he says i don't know so it's like it's not like he's just an indoctrinated fascist at least not yet but he's also not even thinking to be critical of that in the first place um and it's especially interesting with this scene too the 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 daydream sequence because it's so comedic um where it is almost commenting on that debate about like satire and specifically satire of fascist figures where it's like does it disarm of their power or does it make them too easy to not take seriously to be dismissive of again like i like that the film invites speculation and questioning on those topics but it also isn't really taking a side either um the closest thing it kind of does to taking a side i would say is like I guess semi-spoilers, but one of the sort of running threads through the film is there's this um, uh, woman who's like sort of the town beauty. Everyone's like in love with her. She's so gorgeous and whatnot. All the boys are like fantasizing about her and stuff, but she's she's single. And at the end of the film, she gets married to a fascist in the army. And it's not overly stated in in, in a lot of ways. Like it's not, you know framed inherently as like this real tragic sad thing she seems happy at the wedding the wedding seems like a a nice enough affair on the surface but for a film that is so joyous and hopeful and, and loose and free elsewhere for it to end with that and then it kind of gets a little bit quieter and more melancholic and just kind of slowly quietly bows out is like it's the it really the whole film is reminding you of the fascist presence you never forget it but it leaves you thinking specifically about what's going to come from that fascism in a really direct way so um yeah it's brilliant yeah. i love this movie i didn't love it when i first saw it but i was wrong and dumb it's great <laughs> good it's pick. so good how can i ask how it how ensemble it is oh extremely like it's like i said like there's you could argue the main the one kid tita is the main character but I couldn't tell you, like, really anything about him. For the most part, you jump around a lot with this much wider cast. It's really more just about the town. There are a lot of scenes, too, that, like, they don't even seem to necessarily have any... Some of them do clearly have, like, one perspective, but there's also certain big group scenes that it's almost... It's more the community perspective as a whole. Okay. Um, yeah, and it jumps between, like, characters, different age ranges. So you've got... Again, like, technically, there is a protagonist, but functionally, he doesn't really stand out any more than anybody else, and I don't think he really owns point of view on the story. Gotcha. Um, and again, like, the fact that, like, he doesn't, he's not privy to this daydream. It's Chichio's daydream, <laughs> but we get to see it anyway. True. And we get to see another one later where it involves him uh, in a race car, which is a wonderful payoff to him obsessing over his crush the whole movie, um, which I'll, I won't spoil, but it's great. Okay. So nice. Awesome. Well, shall we go from 1973 
Italian classic to 2019. Marvel slop. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say it. Yeah, we're going to talk about Avengers Endgame. I thought if we're doing this because of Guardians 3, I mean, we're just syncing it up. We're not really doing it because of that, but yeah, it's a cool tie-in. But I thought we should probably mm-hmm. throw in a superhero team up for this. And who better than the Avengers? Now, I know that yeah, you're man. I know that you're pretty upset with the directors of the movie at the moment, so I mean, they're hacks. <laughs> It's, it's just they are that's true they uh yeah with this movie though it's kind of like i don't know how important were they <laughs> you know what i mean sure like they're very good at directing marvel films they're very good at making films within that like that world and that industry and that framework they're good at that like the train is set up on the track for them they just got to pull the lever really when you get mm-hmm. to end game that's anyway they're kind of the platonic ideal of what Marvel filmmakers are. <laughs> Which I guess is why they use them so much. Anyway, let's try to stay positive, Dan, okay? I promise nothing. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, I'm going to talk about Avengers Endgame. Uh, the moment I'm going to talk about is right when um, Tony and Nebula get back from Earth, or get back to Earth on the spaceship, and they get out... And there's a scene where there's a reunion with with Iron Man and Captain America and they thought he was dead and now he's back to Earth. And there's kind of a whole exchange that goes on, which is there's lots of exchanges there I like. But then there's a little moment here where Rocket the Raccoon, who's already on Earth from the events in Infinity War, he sees Nebula kind of sitting on the stairs of the spaceship and he just goes and sits with her, pats um, pats her on the hand and then she like basically takes his hand it's completely no dialogue between the two of them it's just this like simple little moment of affection um, that I don't know it gets me it's like it's a, it's an interesting idea especially when you talk about the idea of franchises right because say what you will about big franchises especially the big franchise which is the MCU at the moment but there is at least some advantage to the fact that you get to know the characters so well over all these films, right? I mean, really good movies, you know, throwing it back to one of the best movies, The Godfather. The Godfather can do that in three hours. But there is an advantage to having multiple films to connect the audience to the characters. And I think it says something that these two characters is like a half-robot woman from space and a talking raccoon and yet there's like this touching moment that between them that works like it works it's pretty subtle it's pretty simple but it's it feels heartfelt and it feels genuine and mostly because you've been with these characters for like three movies before this and they're not even characters that really necessarily like each other but because they have so much connection and they've lost the same people there's this little touching, um, you know, moment of comfort between them or solidarity, I suppose. So I think it's impressive that in a massive big blockbuster movie and especially a franchise that likes to, you know, undercut any serious moments with lots of humor. They just kind of let something like this sit in Endgame. They, they kind of said, OK, 
we can be serious for a while. We can be somber. And I like that they leaned into that for this kind of, kind of the culmination final movie of the series. Yeah. Um, you know, I talk some smack about the filmmakers because they are hacks and <laughs> they just are. I don't, but I do like this you, movie just to be clear. <laughs> But I do enjoy this film a lot, and this is... I mean, even when I saw it in the theaters, this was, like, within the first five minutes, I was like, I don't think the movie's going to top this specific moment for me. Um, I've made it clear on this podcast that I think Guardians 2 is the best of the MCU output by a wide margin. I stand by that. And uh, this obviously Love carries, like... change your mind? Uh, no, it did not. It, it changed my mind about existing. <laughs> <laughs> how virtuous that is as an inherent thing but um i was you know in in the hawkeye show when it's like thanos was right is written on the bathroom <laughs> stall i wrote that no um i i i love guardians too and specifically a lot of what i love about that film is the sort of bonds between characters so getting to this as a payoff carries more weight and it's a good example of the as you mentioned the sort of economy of storytelling they can do with this where you know if you're an audience member who's seen every marvel film this is going to hit different but if you're not it's like one shot of characters holding hands it doesn't last long it's enough that for people who if you know you know and it cuts like a knife and if you kind of only sorted you, you watch guardians one once you're like okay like i get it and you move on um and it's nice that in the in this you know big movie of like uh all these action scenes and all these sort of spectacle of going through the avengers history very literally as the time travel story makes the case it has this small moment for character um and i like the fact that like they aren't just not friends really but for what time were i guess not enemies because they specifically didn't have much conflict between the two of them but they were on opposite sides yeah um and just this recognition as a moment of growth uh, both for their relationship, but also each individually as characters and how they've come to accept and let people in, which is something both of them have had to overcome. Now I've watched those people get violently wrenched away from them. Um, and it's also interesting to think about how adrift both of, and especially Rocket, would have felt, because he's, you know, after the snapping happens, he's on Earth, like he doesn't know who any of these people are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an interesting element to think about where, cause there's the five year time jump. It's like, what exactly do Nebula and Rocket do in that time span? Cause they stay around, right? Like they're working That's with true. the Avengers at that point. Um, and it is also just this acknowledgement of like reaching for like the one comfort that they have. This is maybe a, a grandiose comparison to give to this movie, but I really love in the Watchmen comic, there's that bit where, the comedian visits one of his old enemies when he learns about Adrian Veidt's plan. Um, I, spoilers, I guess, because that's, that's <laughs> technically a mystery, but whatever. And and Malak, his old enemy, wakes up, and the comedian is on his on, at the edge of his bed just weeping, and he says, you know, all these years and all I've done, you're the closest thing I have to a friend, and how sad is that? And it is a fun thing, a fun element to comic book stories where... You know, the, the villain and hero relationship becomes bizarrely like a friendship in a strange way. Um, and Nebula is not quite a villain in that regard. And by this movie, she's a hero, too. 
but it's 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 playing in a similar zone, and I like that. The the thing I like about Endgame is, I like that it's not scared to just be sad. It's like mm-hmm. the first part of the movie is pretty sad, and even this scene, like even the because I just watched the scene to just kind of get my my feet wet with it again. But even like right before that, when Captain America and Tony reunite, and Tony just says, "I lost the kid," like that's that's pretty sad. And then, mm-hmm. then there's that little moment where he, where you can see Robert Downey Jr. He's trying, he's trying to ask Captain Cap if Pepper made it or if she's gone, and he can't even, he can't even like voice the words. And then, of course, she shows up, and his question is answered for him. But you can see him struggling with that question and can't actually physically ask it. Mm. Like those are good moments. Those are really good character Mm -hmm. moments that I'm glad that they didn't shy away from and I'm glad they didn't undercut them with stupid jokes like they love to do. No, this one plays it like really down the line for a long time. I don't even think you really start to get any humor into it until um, Ant-Man shows up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And at that point, like, it's also motivating the story forward. Yeah, that first act, they really are willing to dwell in the in the sort of sadness of it and not that i need every marvel film to be like a death march no no but you know, at the same time like again guardians 2 is my favorite and there's all sorts of goofy stuff in that film but that's another one where like there's goofy stuff but when they need to hit a, a moment they stick with it um and you know it's it's hopefully something that like as they reflect and they seem to be in this period of like introspection on the franchise and being like, "Mm." not course correcting is maybe overstating it, but tweaking things after a mixed reception to phase four, looking at their like infinity war and Endgame are probably two of the most like universally beloved. And both of those films, like again, infinity War committing to that ending, um, which even though it was, you know, people who knew like follow this stuff, knew it was a two parter, I don't think all of us were anticipating it was going to end with such a shocking and swift defeat of the heroes. So, um, and that's the other thing is like going into this, like the main thing, because it wasn't clear from the marketing is like, how do they resolve that? You know, like, what are they going to do? How is that going to play out? Like what's, you know, and so, and the fact that like, in some ways, the, the solemn quality between rocket nebula and Tony asking about pepper is kind of a precursor to the fact that, like, it gets kind of swept up in this adventure of, like, we're going to go back, fight Thanos, get the, the Infinity Stones. You know, it starts to gear up again, and then that gets undercut when, oh, no, the stones are gone. And, and uh, you know, that it starts in this sort of solemn way. I mean, actually, i go a step further, even before you get to that. The fact that the first couple minutes of the movie are just uh, Tony and Nebula on the ship together trying to survive as life support slowly dwindles down and keep themselves amused. Um... Which is a wonderful way to start the movie. And then Captain Marvel comes and does one of her two things in the film. <laughs> Big setup is Captain Marvel after it was like, what's she going to do in Endgame? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> she did bring Tony back, though. So yeah. Tony and Nebula. So Yeah, it's the fact that I had no idea like how they were going to bring people back, how they were going to resolve this at all. It was like our, the first time I watched this movie... I loved it. Like, I, I just, it felt very, 
for the first time in a Marvel movie, I had no idea what they were going to do. Right, like you, you got a pretty good idea. Like, okay, this is the this is a Thor movie. He's gonna do this, this, and this. Like, we've got that formula mm-hmm. down. But at this point, and especially because they started it off, um, you think they know where it's gonna go. Like you said, going back to get Thanos, that doesn't work. You get the five year time jump, and I'm like, what is happening? Like, I have no idea. The most where- dramatic title card <laughs> in a movie ever. Like five have- years later like stretch it out so much i'm joking about it now but it's very effective yeah. but i had no idea where the movie was going i just kind of it was it was just mm-hmm. like a strap in and go along with the ride and i really liked that i wasn't somebody though like who speculated who tried to figure it out like i I'm, i wasn't doing that i know yeah, that i don't like comic book fans were probably piecing it together oh they might do this and they might do that and they might do that i'm I, well past that yeah i didn't do that but um and I think I just, it made a better I, film it's, for me. Life's too short. I don't have the time to do that anymore. <laughs> I do that over like Dark Souls lore and speculating what what the real story is. That's I, the one thing I, I dedicate that. to like my obsessive geekery. Put all the pieces together. Um, um not Marvel films. <laughs> In part because it just doesn't seem like there's much point. You know, Winter Soldier's like, oh my god, Hydra. This, like, new thing. What's... Oh, Age of Ultron, first 10 minutes. Glad we wrapped up that Hydra problem. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm not... You're not getting me. That's fair. I mean, even this, where it's, like, the the gap, that five-year gap, like, there's so much, like, rich potential in, like, what was life like? What happened to, like, you know, if people got married when there's... If their spouses got snapped and then now they're back, like, how does that... What does that look like? You know, what are the sort of ramifications of everything that happens? And then it's like they've kind of addressed it in some Marvel stuff. I think some of the shows have dealt with it a little bit. Yeah. Or from home kind of played it off as a joke, a funny joke to some extent, but a joke nonetheless. Um, so it's like, and I'm, this isn't even really that much of a criticism. I'm not sure I care that much, but it is this thing where I'm like, I'm not going to get caught playing detective on this stuff because it only matters for the sake of whatever story they want to tell at a given moment so yeah eh. that's fair i mean at the same time though i do think they're fairly good at like not completely forgetting about some of the big moments like they refer to the new york invasion a lot in the later movies Right, like Iron Man three deals with it, Spider Man deals with it. Like they're always referring back to, um, back to the New York invasion from the first Avengers movie, and I mean, yeah, some things take it more seriously than others, but I mean, some of the some of the shows have really dealt with the with the five year gap. Like Falcon Winter Soldier, I think, delved pretty deeply into like how it disrupted people. It was kind of boring, mm-hmm. but it did. <laughs> But maybe they just need like a like a sitcom with no um, an MCU sitcom with no actual superheroes, just dealing with what Didn't life is DC like in the try gap. That? Yeah, I think they did. I don't think it it's went like well. Powerless or something? I don't I have know. No idea. See, not that we need to get sidetracked into MCU discussion, but certain things do like stick around but it just when you try to piece it together as like a story i find it's very sloppy like the fact that one of the big uh sort of actors for the sokovia accords in civil war the named sokovia awards uh, accords is because of age of ultron 
And that movie dedicated so much time to showing the Avengers saving people in that battle, as if basically to give a middle finger to Man of Steel, because there was so much discussion about collateral damage in Metropolis. And then I remember there was tons of like smug internet people when Age of Ultron came on being like, oh, see, a superhero movie where they saved the people instead of blowing up the city. Joss Whedon will never be more cancelled than Zack Snyder. Oh, how time makes fools of us all. But, um, and, like, that was so much of the discourse, and then you get to Civil War, and it's like, we've let a lot of people die through our inaction. It's like, you can't have it both ways. Like, what's the point of having all those scenes of them saving people if, oh, yeah, we didn't save enough people? What's the point of setting up Hydra if, well, we've wrapped up Hydra immediately? You know? Like, Tony and Pepper, as a couple, like, they break up, get back together, get married, and have a kid, and all of that happens off-screen. Yeah, that's fair. Stupid. You wanted to see the wedding, I know. I, you know what? Like, who doesn't love a wedding? <laughs> get a free dinner, it's great. Anyway, so, Rocket and Nebula. Good scene. It's a good scene. It's a good scene and a good film. Yeah. Um, Hold on my heartstrings by building on the work of a superior filmmaker so (laughs) (laughs) well um talking about superior filmmakers yeah i mean you you mentioned the russos and my disdain for them which i assume is in part because of the their whole celebrating ai art lately which my newest video was uh quite unhappy with as as a concept and as a thing that exists and i talk about that in the context of Robert Altman movies. And Robert Altman is like one of the great ensemble filmmakers. Definitely. Robert Ensemble Man, they could call him. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to talk about one of his films for this week. And I ultimately went with Shortcuts, which is one of the most ensemble films to ever ensemble. In terms of it being a movie with no central character, yep, this is it. It's um, based on these Raymond Chandler short stories and they're all happening in the same city that's all about these uh characters in los angeles it was very much like magnolia is essentially like adapted not adapted quite they're different stories but the structure and uh, approach is straight out of this movie where it's all set around the same span of time and you kind of cut between all these different characters some of them cross over some of them don't um and then they're all connected by this like uh sort of city-wide event near the end um, and it's like a star, star-studded cast. I will quickly, just to give a sense of the ensemble, I'll quickly read off some names. Andy McDowell, Bruce Davidson, Julianne Moore, Matthew Modine, Ann Archer, Fred Ward, Jennifer Jason Lee, Chris Penn, Robert Downey Jr., Avengers connection there, Madeline Stowe, Tim Robbins, Lily Tomlin, Francis McDormand, Peter Gallagher, uh, Lyle Lovett, Buck Henry, etc., etc. Huge. There's way more than that, but wow. huge, huge cast. Um and a lot of them from before they had like really the sort of blown up and and some of them had done some things others were very well established some were on the rise to becoming the greats of their time but it's a wonderful film and almost every story is like not just good but excellent they're all really compelling and captivating and my favorite scene and it's really stretching the bounds of little moment but it's basically this one actor's big scene in the film so and it's kind of only big moment so i wanted to highlight it which is uh, good old jack lemon shows up um, playing the father of one of the other characters who the Bruce Davison character Bruce Davison who my generation will remember is playing Senator Kelly in the uh, Fox X-Men movies 
Um, so, you know, there's that. Right. But uh, he, his son is in the hospital because of a car accident. And Jack Lemmon shows up as Bruce Davison's father. And Bruce, when he was a kid, was also... Uh, or not a car accident, sorry, hit by a car. Bruce was also hit by a car when he was a kid and spent some time in the hospital. And while that was happening, Jack Lemmon almost had an affair with uh, his wife's sister, this kid's aunt. And so the scene is basically just the scene of Jack Lemmon explaining to his son what happened from his perspective and how he ended up in this compromised situation with his wife's sister. Um, And it's this long scene of it's like five minutes where jack's telling the story about you know um he said to his wife that he wasn't going into work for whatever reason but actually he was and then you know he goes to uh the sister's place to fix he's a repairman i don't remember what he's fixing in the house maybe it's the sink maybe it's radiator doesn't matter but he goes there to fix it and you know she shows up wearing a gown and she's offering him a beer and He's playing with that very Jack Lemon nervousy energy where, you know, uh, he's like, uh, she, offers, she says, do you want a beer? And I'm like, that's a little early for that sort of thing, don't you think? And she's like, I won't mind. He said, well, what the heck, I'll have a beer. And going on and on. And the next thing I know, she puts another beer in front of me and I'm drinking that and I can barely see my wrench and going on and on and eventually building to like her wanting him to come upstairs and, and have sex with her. And it's Jack's delivering it as this torrent of nervous energy. And it just occasionally cuts back to his son listening to the speech, like trying to keep it together, but he's like breaking down, you know, taking off his glasses. He's fighting back tears as Jack's giving this, this like long, awkward, never ending story, trying to explain, but also try and defend himself and try to rationalize you know, the fact that he cheated on his kid's mom with his aunt and how upsetting that would have been for him and making excuses saying it was only the one time and I never before or since. And, you know, I wanted to see you more after that, but your mom didn't want me around and I had to respect her wishes. And I, in general, I mean, it's just on its face, an amazing scene. It's great performances from both of them. Lemon gets the most to do here because he's got the big speech, but Bruce Davison's reactions to it and his having to try and keep his composure and have it just whittle away one step at a time is really sort of effective and really uh, does a great job of, like, breaking you as a viewer down. Um, The main reason I want to talk about the scene, though, one, I think it's indicative of this as an ensemble where you just get these little pockets of drama that don't actually connect that much outside of this, the one scene. You know, thematically they do in a lot of ways, but in terms of, like, the story, they're locked into just these moments, but there's such great pockets of drama that, like, you, how could you ever complain about that? Um, but the other reason is because I think it's a great example of Jack Lemmon's late career, where, like a lot of actors, or, I'll put it this way, a lot of actors from the sort of old Hollywood model struggled to stay relevant in the same way as acting styles changed and modernized and lemon was able to make the transition and this is in part because he starts a bit later than a lot of other you know old hollywood actors like he really starts to become to prominence in the 50s at that point you know styles are already starting to modernize so he's maybe more well equipped to make that jump but what i love about films like this and glengarry glenn ross is how they take jack's nervous everyman energy and make it a little more desperate and pathetic. 
Uh, certainly Glengarry Glen Ross, the pathetic quality of it comes out. And there's an element of that to this speech, too. But the other quality I like to it is usually when Jack's playing this nervous energy kind of thing, especially in something like The Apartment, he's very likable. You root for him. And here that nervous energy is used to much more arguably insidious ends, where it's like, you still feel bad for this guy to some extent because he does seem earnest, but it is also a man giving a speech about why, you know, it's okay trying to justify cheating on his wife the day that his son was hit by a car. You know, like... It's kind of scummy, and it's fascinating to see Lemon take his energy to be these likable everymen and with this nervous energy and then funnel it into being something a little bit more um, repugnant, but also doing it in a way that where he's not well, he's not putting on a scary mustache and really like overtly playing into a different persona. He's doing he's playing with his usual skill set, but in an environment and in a context where, it's generating such a different feel, and uh, I I love it. I think it's one of the best scenes in in his career. Yeah, I like that you focus it on Lemon. Like I haven't seen this one, but I I am a fan of Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, and it always impressed me that just that he took that role because mm-hmm. yeah, because he comes off like he ends up when you first see him, he looks like oh yeah, this is the Jack Lemon that we know. And then you're like, oh, maybe not. Like, no, he's got a little bit of a shady side to him too as the movie goes on. Um, and I, I like Lemon's just boldness in taking a role like that at this age when most actors would just be like, pack it in, do the simple movies. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I mean, he did he did those too. Like he did still did Grumpy Old Man and everything at this time. But yeah, he wasn't. He was still willing to take the risks, which is nice. To yeah, see. and he was, and he's also just comforting to think he was still able to knock it out of the park. <clears throat> yeah, it's like you know, you watch other actors at an older age, and it's like, I don't want to go too extreme, and I'm I'm not Tarantino who think like once you start to lose it, you got to pack it in and preserve that legacy. But at the same time, there's definitely something to seeing an actor who was at one point, you know, a titan, just kind of. Being, not being fully there, but Lemon is like phenomenal in in Glengarry Glen Ross and and in this like I think it's like you know top notch level where and in a cast full of fantastic actors, many of which are at like their prime. You got a young Julianne Moore here, you got Francis McDormand, Tim Robbins, who is one of the most underappreciated actors despite being an Oscar winner. He weirdly doesn't get the full respect I think he deserves, and Lemon is able to come in, you know, this like actor who's should be well past his prime and completely just knock everyone away in terms of the scope and power of what he does and it's like really one scene like he's got a couple little moments in the hospital with uh with bruce and andy mcdowell who's his daughter-in-law um who he's like had barely any contact with and you can tell it's like very awkward when he just shows up at the hospital he's like well i heard you your kid was here and he doesn't even know what the kid's name is um which is you know bad for the grandfather to not know uh (laughs) but this is like his like showstopper scene and uh i'm so glad that he got it and got to show because i don't know how many more how much more movies he did after this like it would have been at least one of the either grumpy old men two or both of them i don't know if he'd done the first one at this point um but he had one more of those left in and like i don't know how many other roles he really had left uh ahead of him but 
in terms of being if this is the last great Jack Lemon, he went out on an unimpeachable note. I think he's phenomenal here. That's awesome. Yeah, because like you think of somebody like Robert De Niro who kind of just leaned back on doing all these weirdo comedy roles. Like, thank goodness the Irishman came along, but like for a while there, it was looking mm-hmm. pretty grim. And he was very much just kind of relying on his own reputation and not really digging into anything. Um, so it's kind of nice to see when actors do that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah. even I don't know, I don't know, is would Jack Nicholson be the same boat? Like, I'm thinking of The Departed. He's very much playing the Jack Nicholson persona. I don't know that he's... I yeah. I don't know that he's digging in that much, like... He's fun in it, but I wouldn't is. call it, like, a great performance. Yeah. Um, He kind of just retired before he could get embarrassing, though. Yeah, that's um, true. Which is, you know, maybe to his credit. I mean, I miss seeing him in films. Um, but... Yeah. Uh, I I think um, you haven't seen this one though yet, have you? No, I really should give it a go because I like I, I like, like Altman it. and yeah, I should I just it's, it just hasn't come around I guess I don't know. It's one of his best, I think. So top five for sure. Well, I'm glad you picked an Altman because yeah, he definitely should be on this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because mm-hmm. you think like like Mash. I almost went with Mash. I did think of it, but. Um, I mean, there are two pretty clear protagonists there at the same point, so... Yeah, but I also, like... I mean, even... I was thinking about this, though. Like, even, like, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which literally has, like, the two named main characters, even that has a very ensemble quality, the way it plays out. Yeah. Even though it's very clear that it's McCabe's story, and, and the book's just called McCabe, um, which is an interesting distinction. But uh, all of his films are so interested in, like, you know larger community and group dynamics uh nashville would have been another contender although i haven't seen nashville in in full in a very long time yeah so Gosford park i know that one a second one too that's another one i haven't seen in a very long time yeah me neither so nice honestly doing that ai video i'm like i gotta rewatch all these altman movies he's really because rewatching the player in uh in prep for that was like ooh. Almond's so good. And he's on, he's like unstoppable. And the player is one of his best as well. Yeah. So. Nice. Good pick. I will. Now you got me excited to see the lemon performance. Well, I mean, actually, that's an aside. Maybe I shouldn't because the last movie you watched from the podcast on my word was uh, not well received in the House of Ian. <laughs> you weren't supposed to bring that up. I, uh, well, I mean, I that was not on the, the. I was not instructed that I wasn't allowed to bring up your. <laughs> what was it? One and a half star review for Sid and Nancy. Yeah, I did not like it. Well, when I when you get an hour into the movie and you're and you look at the clock and you're like, how has this only been an hour? And you're like, I don't know. That's never a good sign. You gave Rocky Five a higher score. Did I? I think so. That's what that's what Greg said in the comments. <laughs> well. I don't know that they can be directly compared, but hey. Well, I'm doing it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to my next pick, which is Dear White People, which came out in 2014 uh, and was directed by Justin Simeon. And this is one where it kind of seems like there's a 
you know, one, maybe two protagonists, but really I think it is an ensemble movie because there are lots, there are actually quite a few, when you think of the point of view things, there's quite a few different points of view going on with this movie. And so with Dear White People, it's, it takes place on, in a university campus and you see a whole bunch of different perspectives. And particularly you see it from like two, well, there's, there's like this, this white boy fraternity and then there's like a I guess what would it be a dorm house that's mostly made up of black students is kind of known as as the dorm house for the black students and they kind of um you know take take pride in that fact and there's a radio show called Dear White People uh, with where Tessa Thompson's character Samantha, Samantha White is, you know, she's it's just basically her own radio show that can get you know inflammatory and and with different parties on the campus and but she's definitely made a name for herself. But there's a, quite a few other characters that we follow as well. One of them is Lionel, uh, who's who's this kid that's that's in campus. He's a writer for. Well, he's trying to write for all the different newspapers on campus. Uh, so he's a writer. But he's he's a little bit awkward and he doesn't really have friends and he doesn't really, you know, he's an introvert and doesn't know where he stands basically in the university milieu, I guess. So there's, and there's an interesting scene in the movie, you know, earlier on in the movie where he comes, walks out of one of the buildings and he's kind of looking around campus and seeing different groups of people in campus. And the first time I saw this movie, I didn't even notice this moment until the second moment because it's pretty subtle. But you see, what you see is you see him looking at these different groups of people and in each one, you actually see this person kind of coming to join the group and, you know, they're buddy buddies and and they're like oh agree to him and everything and then you realize oh wait a minute that's him and it's him with different different hair and him with different clothes and everything but you see him join one group and then you look the camera pans over to another group and he's he's now wearing different clothes and has a different haircut and he's joining that group and then you get the oh yeah he's uh he's just imagining himself and he's trying to figure out where he fits in in this campus and this is kind of a nice very very simple but creative and visual way to show his internal monologue right without needing any language without needing any dialogue without having to have a voice over in his head or anything like that Um, it's just the director taking a pretty simple technique but a creative one because it's not really something you see um, to get this idea across but I think it really works and I think it's a good strength of kind of lower budget filmmaking and using that to your advantage and just thinking about what the purpose of your scene is, what your character's motivation is and how to actually make that visual on film. So Mm -hmm. I think it's a pretty cool moment. That's a really good pick. I like the, uh, the ingenuity you point out and it's a good example of how, you know, budgetary limitations need not be a limit to, visual storytelling because i think it's often there's this stigma or this this is idea that like low budget indie films are very just like people in rooms talking and i suppose they can be but you know 
it's not that expensive to show an actor wearing different clothes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it, it's 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 still very visual, but it's not going to put you back massively in budget. It's not going to take a million setups or specific camera angles or lighting tricks to get right. Um, and I like it too because it's uh, you know, it, it's something that is kind of a cliche that people talk about with college life is this idea of like you really find your people or you find yourself. And I haven't seen the film, so I can't speak to how much this plays into this character, but I would almost argue that that's kind of a comforting thing in some ways when you go, but it's also almost this weird, like, pressure mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, I got to find myself. Who am I, you know? Yeah, and that's very and much the case hope- with this character. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of hope to be done with it by then. Um, and it's also a good way of, like, it's maybe an extreme version. Like, I can't... The the whole dress thing is something I, I can only relate to so much because I basically found my dress style at 12 and I'm like, I'm just jeans and a heavy metal t-shirt and that's that's what I'll be buried in. can live with that. But, uh, you know, this idea though that like when you kind of reflect back on like even yourself from, or at least I know I do this from like a couple years ago and just like whinging and embarrassment, um, this kind of gets to that from the other side of that uh, process of like looking ahead to try and figure out who you want to be. And I think that is a very like clearly identifiable experience of figuring out, trying to figure out who you want to be and then looking back with so much regret at how you handle that. So, yeah. um, Yeah. Because a lot of this movie is like characters trying to figure out where they fit in and who their people are. Um, and some people are like trying, there's some characters that are trying to force being part of one group. Um, and so it's, a, it's a, I was, I would recommend it. I think it's a really, really interesting movie. I like it for its ensemble nature, like to bring it back to the topic. Like that's, that's kind of what draws me to it. Cause it's almost like, I mean, you don't know everybody on campus, but you got a pretty good layout of these, all these different players on campus and, um, and you, you you start to piece together, you know, how they relate to each other, what their relationships with each other are. And it, I mean, they did end up making a TV show, I think, for that very reason. Um, so Netflix, I think it was like three years later, Netflix actually made a show, maybe ran for two seasons. So it, it does definitely play into, actually, to bring it back to Altman, it kind of reminds me of MASH, right? Because they, uh, you know, they have a movie and then they made a, TV series on it and they even brought some of the cast back not the main characters like Tessa Thompson didn't come on the the TV show for example but some of the secondary characters stayed like the actors stayed and um, yeah but I think the movie is pretty solid I like it quite a bit nice I think it's got lots yeah, I haven't to say. seen this one yeah. I, would I missed it. it when it was in theaters it was like just you know never slipped through the cracks and I don't think at the moment it's streaming anywhere. Although we also like cut our streaming services by a lot. So perhaps I just don't have access to as much anymore. That's fair. So. I just cut Disney today. Yeah. yeah. Is it because is it Mando's done? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Was it worth sticking around for Mando? I don't know. We don't need to get into that today. <laughs> <laughs> I've got thoughts, but yeah. Fair. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's a movie that's got quite a bit to say, um, but there's a lot going under the surface too, and especially with the Lionel character. I think the Sam character is very interesting too, the Tessa Thompson's character, but 
I do like the ensemble nature of this movie quite a bit. I think that's what really draws me to it. Mm, nice. And it makes the campus kind of like, you know, a location that you kind of get familiar with. Actually, I just reminded me, I think, I think our regular guest, Michael, I think they actually filmed it at his former alma mater. If I remember, really? I think that's what he told me. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, well, that's, it's interesting. Like, in, that's a good example of where the ensemble storytelling approach is also really effective for certain types of communities you want to explore where it's like, if it's a, if you're making a film about college campuses, I'm assuming it was set in the present when it came out. Yeah. Um, so college campuses in the 2010s, like if you make it an ensemble, maybe that prevents you from getting as much depth with any one specific niche or subculture, but gives you maybe a broader sense of the overarching community. Um, and I think you could argue that's, uh, I don't want to say more valuable, but that is of value when you're dealing with that kind of world, when you're dealing with exploring like a very specific community. Um, which is something that runs through, actually, it runs through my my next pick. Uh, yep. If if we want to segue now, let's do it. So, closing out with uh, Steven Soderbergh's Traffic, I would argue by far his best film. I've been meaning to revisit Out of Sight, but this for me towers above everything else he's made, and it's not particularly close. But um, it is part of the hyperlink cinema where it's like all these different stories. There isn't really a main character. Michael Douglas is kind of presented as one in the marketing, but that's more just because he was a star. He's not really any more important than uh, the other majors in the ensemble. Um, but it's a film about the drug trade, and what I find relevant about this is because the hyperlink approach is not in like an Altman <clears throat> movie where it's more this like, uh, or Magnolia is maybe probably a better example where it's like, characters who some of them cross in and out of each other's lives but they're almost more bound by coincidence and chance traffic is not that these characters are not bound accidentally there's very deliberate and there's a lot of irony in the different types of people who are affected and the the sort of in terms of income uh and their class and their their position in life and where they live and the circumstances of their lives the discrepancy in those experiences is part of the point uh, in terms of how it's examining the drug trade at all levels from, you know, the the uh, supply, uh, dealers in Mexico who are sending the drugs over to dealers in the States who are trying to sell it, DEA agents, drug czars in Washington trying to shut it down, people who are just users, and how these characters connect, that's, that's what the movie really is focusing on. And one of the ways it makes that point is in these really extreme color palettes where at the extreme end of things the scenes in mexico are shot and like you know really highly saturated like the sort of like greenish brown um more greenish yellow like tint that everything has that's become something of a cliche for how western filmmakers will shoot mexico uh you see it in sicario for example and it's become kind of like a cinematic shorthand with some problematic connotations about depicting like you know uh mexico is like this really like barren and crime ridden and sketchy place and making it look more seedy in an unnatural way but in this film it's not really used strictly for that purposes it's more specific because the other end of the extreme are the scenes in washington which are uh really desaturated they're like this cold blue it almost looks like 
you know, like, if you didn't know better, you might think they were trying day-for-night photography or something. Like, it's so um, pronounced the how deep those blues are in the hue of the color palette. Um, so the film is sort of visually not just distinguishing its stories in terms of, like, the settings themselves, but it's using this style to do so. And that's part of the commentary that, like, in Mexico where the drugs are being... Um, produced and then shipped off that's where it's like highly saturated that's where it's the hottest that's the sort of core of it and in washington where you've got the drug czars who are trying to fight the war on drugs but are also the most disconnected from that war both the the actual use of drugs but also like the the sort of the actual danger of that world that's the coldest color palette and that comes to a head in the moment i want to talk about where douglas is his daughter big twist is a drug addict herself and she's gone off and is in the throes of a binge and he's trying to find her and he enlists her friend from school seth who's played by topher grace uh everyone's favorite actor and they are basically out by this in this poor neighborhood trying to get uh find the daughter who's shacked up somewhere doing drugs and douglas has this line where he says i can't believe you brought my daughter to a place like this and Seth, it turns out, is like, whoa, back up, man. And he gives the speech about, like, the inherent racism of that and calls him out on, like, uh, you know, like, what do you think it does to the psyche of a black person when everyone, every white person goes up and like, hey, man, you got any drugs? You got any drugs? Like, what does that do to you? I guarantee you, you know, if in your community, gated white community, everyone's coming up to your people every 20 minutes, like, you got any drugs? You got any drugs? Within a day, everyone would be selling. And he kind of goes on this rambling speech, and I think it's really important. It's it's a good example of where that color strategy of like the sort of coldness and the disconnect these characters have is really manifest in the dialogue and in the situation where, you know, Seth's trying to call out this old white guy for his blindness and his privilege and his implicit racism in describing a low-income neighborhood as like a place like this and the inherent racism that comes with that. But Seth is also a rich white kid. He's also super sheltered. He's also super protected and insulated from this world. Him giving this speech, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. And in his own way, this speech about, like, the psyche of what it does to a person when they're asked every day, like, you know, you got any drugs? The way he s says that and the way he's so, like, kind of eager to point out this speech, really to emphasize his own cleverness more than to uh, actually fight a point is in its own way just as condescending as what Douglas is saying. Um, and I think it's a great example of the uh, sort of just the disequilibrium and the fusion of like the style of the film and the dialogue and what's coming together in terms of um, these characters being so disconnected from the actual consequences of the drug trade in in both America and, and, the, and Mexico. So, um, yeah, that's my moment. Yeah, it's a good scene. Um, there's definitely an aspect to Topher Grace's character that he's... Like, I get the sense that he's also just trying to distract from the fact that, you know, he did kind of get her into this mess. And he's mm -hmm. trying to, you know, shrug off the blame a little bit and probably his own guilt at some, at some level. Um, and it's also interesting that, like, what was Michael Douglas's job? Like, wasn't he... He's like a drug czar. Like, he's yeah. supposed to be, like, leading the war on drugs yeah. in Washington. So it's interesting that he's getting yeah. a, le a lecture from some high school kid about it. And mm -hmm. and kind of getting owned a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, he's not... 
there's kernels of truth in the speech that Seth gives. <clears throat> and I certainly think, you know, he's right to call out, you know, Douglas's character. And the film makes it very clear that, like, I mean, the, the irony of, you know, Douglas being the drugs are fighting the war on drugs and his daughter being an addict is like very deliberate, but it's also, it's not just the sort of sad irony of like the man fighting the war on drugs, you know, it's more about to make a point, a political point about how, um, blind, I guess the, the people fighting the so-called war on drugs are to the actual realities. I mean, it's very deliberate that the last scene with that character and with the daughter is at rehab, and saying mm -hmm. we're here to listen it makes a very it doesn't say it out loud but it makes it pretty clear that like the film is on the side of like uh treatment and and support rather than criminalization uh when it comes to actually if if you're seriously interested in like combating the uh consequences of drug use and stopping people from ODing or from becoming addicted like that's you know the side the film takes um, yeah, I would agree with that because, I mean, even in this speech, but in the film as a whole, it kind of paints the whole war on drugs as being a futile effort. Like, yeah. There's like, what do you actually plan to do here? And mm -hmm, nobody mm -hmm. really has the answers. You know? Yeah. And what really gets accomplished <clears throat> at the end of it? Not much, you know. Um, and I think the I just think the color is a good way to and I should mention that like a lot of the points my uh, friend, uh, YouTuber Wildflix, has a really good video on traffic, and he makes that case about the different... I mean, people have talked about the different um, cinematography approaches for the different stories before, but I think he... I totally agree with him when he talks when he talks about how, you know, now the sort of... that uh, highly saturated way of shooting Mexico is seen as, like, a really cheap cliche for filmmakers to be like Mexico is sketchy and scary. Like Sicario for as well crafted as it is really kind of plays into that. But in this film, it's being not to say it's like you couldn't can't criticize it for this, but I do think it's being used in a bit more of a sophisticated way to denote the different levels of um, connection to the source of the problem. The fact that like, you know, the Benicio del Toro character who's a cop in Mexico is in way more danger and he's way more at risk and way more economically disadvantaged and and just yeah like in at greater risk than michael douglas he his scenes are shot in this sort of thick layer of like um high high contrast like blinding light this sort of almost sickly levels and then douglas is all cold and detached so um Again, like even discounting what the actual plot and the material of the story is, that cinematically is communicating something about the drug trade and how it's uh, sort of how it's being policed and how it's being treated as like a, a, a social issue. Yeah, when I first saw this movie, I was much younger, obviously, and really kind of getting into movies. And when this one came out, even though I would not have made those connections that you made to the cinematography and their connection to what the film is saying, the fact that it was that certain scenes were shot very, very differently was still something that was very apparent. And, mm -hmm. and even if I didn't know the purpose, I could sense that there was let's like, Soderbergh had purpose to that. And yeah, I think it's definitely a strength of the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And certainly when it goes to the political point of like, you know, making Mexico look like a scary, sketchy, dangerous place. It also makes 
America look in its own way rather cold and detached and unwelcoming too. So again, there's more parody, and then maybe that's why the 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 um, DEA agents we follow with uh, Don Cheadle and Luis Guzman, and then the the dealers in uh, in the states who's Luis uh, not Luis Guzman, um, Stephen Bauer and uh, Catherine Zeta Jones, who's his wife, who initially doesn't know, they're shot at a more natural palette. Um, is perhaps reflective of like that's kind of the middle ground of where the war is fought, right. as it were. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Yeah. So, and this speech is probably the most going back to Topher Grace's speech is probably the most indicative scene of just like disconnect from because it's also a, it's about being disconnected from the real issues and being privileged and being blind to it, but also it's being I think again very deliberately said by you know, a character who is himself, like, a privileged white dude, like, goes to a private school, is very wealthy himself, um, you know. And again, like, he's giving this speech, but he's also, it's telling that he's giving it, but he's also, like, he's not, he's not, like, an activist or anyone trying to do anything productive or, you know, an anti-racist in any way. He's, he's just kind of doing it to win an argument. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit more cynical in how it's employed. As you say, it's in part to alleviate his own guilt or try to distance yeah. his own responsibility. He sees a he sees an opportunity to kind of get a step up on this guy that's like literally just pulled him out of class mm. and dragged mm. him by his coat. That's a great scene too. Seth has to be excused. Yeah. Although, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't, I don't who that. Why no teacher is going to let their kid get pulled out of class? Anyway, Damn, whatever. It's Michael Douglas. <laughs> he can't stop him. He's the drug czar. He you can't you can't beat him. I think it's also funny that this is like this was really Topher Grace's first foray out of that ninety out or that seventy show. Like, yeah, this was really so. This was Eric Foreman seeing him in a very different light. It was very weird at the time. He's had an interesting little career, honestly. So, yeah. He definitely he's has. really good in Black Klansman. Yeah. Like he's really good there. I kind of made that joke at the beginning with like everyone's favorite actor, but I do actually like him. I think he's pretty good. Yeah, I think he gets a bad rap. Probably because he was Venom and nobody liked him as Venom, but No, that's not his fault. No. Sweet. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Traffic is Um <clears throat> I don't I don't know. I remember not liking it as much when I watched it not that long ago, but like, I do like it. I don't think it's a very strong movie. I don't know if it's... Is it Soderbergh's best? I'm, I'm assuming you think Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, they're very different films. <laughs> That's the thing. He's, they're very well, different Well, the same year he made this, he makes Aaron Brockovich. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is also a good movie, but it's like safe, audience-pleasing, crowd-pleaser movie. You know, like um, middle-brow Oscar film it's it's good within that realm but it's way safer than this like i will say as i get older the film maybe seems a bit more obvious than it did to me when i was younger um but i don't know i think it earns it i think it feels uh authentic and uh i don't know insightful so i don't really mind how heavy-handed it is i also just think it's like really exciting to watch like the, the thriller elements of it are really well executed uh, especially when it comes to like uh, Don Cheadle and Luis Guzman having to um, protect Miguel Ferreira as the, the contact who's going to testify against his dealer. So yeah, and there's some good like dramatic 
dialogue scenes like this one that are peppered mm-hmm. throughout too that are that are fun to watch. So, yeah, I mean Benicia del Toro giving an amazing performance. Um, I actually almost chose from this movie related to his story where you see the the general. I think his name's Salazar, who's like um, submitting one of this this guy to like the most abject torture, so when he wants to get information and he just shows up in person and he's friendly to him, the guy just immediately gives him everything, and it's like, I don't say anything about it, but it's like, man, that's such a depressing insight into how effective that would be as a strategy for getting information. <laughs> I just didn't have anything much to say about that moment other than, like, man, that's really depressing, so... <laughs> and really upsetting to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think Tel Toro's brilliant in it. I love yeah, how understated is. the final scene is with him. Yeah, because I mean, I know he was in other stuff like Usual Suspects and stuff, but this was where he really made his mark, I think, on the film. On his world. Oscar. Yep. It's kind of a shocking Oscar win because it's the kind of low-scale, small performance that I think is easy to overlook. Yeah, but Traffic, like you were maybe too young, but Traffic was Traffic was a pretty big front runner at the, these Oscars. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that it didn't win Best Picture was a little bit was surprising. Soderbergh won director. Yeah. So this was, there was big pushes for everything traffic at that point. Yeah, I'm glad there was. It's very deserving. Um, I just, it's also very easy to imagine a world where Del Toro doesn't even get nominated because yeah, again, true. it's very easy to go for like, I mean the, the fact that like you know, Julia Roberts wins for and in the landslide for Aaron Brockovich, and like she's good in that movie, but it's like it's a movie star performance. Mm-hmm. Um. Ellen Burstyn in Requiem for a Dream is not. She don't win. Yeah, that's um, fair. Michelle Yeoh in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon doesn't get nominated. Yeah. I almost... I. Well, my wife really wanted me to pick Ocean's Eleven for this. <laughs> for the Unsolvable movie. So I'm glad you picked a Soderbergh to, to fill in the gap there. I mean, we, we both could have picked Soderbergh. Yeah, I'd I be did, okay with that. I didn't really have a moment, but... That's fair. Yeah, so we got Soderbergh in there. We got Altman. We got Tarantino. I think the big other ensemble guy that we missed was probably B. Linklater, hey? Yeah. He didn't get a showing. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've talked about both Days. I know I've talked about Days and Confused, I I think, anyway. I I don't know if I've talked about uh, Everybody Wants Some, but I also love that film. I don't know. Those are the two big ones as far as his ensemble films go. Really, mostly those ones, but they're also like they're two of the best ones, especially Dazed and Confused. Oh man! <laughs> um, well, we can't fit every. We had to make room for the Russos, you know, That's like right. the real <laughs> champions of cinema. They hate what they do. They hate what they do. It's so depressing. <laughs> it's depressing that I see more value in their art than they do. Just in just wait I'm just waiting for the reveal for them to reveal that the gray man was actually written by AI and I will not be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I almost watched that when I was trying to catch up on like blockbuster type movies for the Top Gun video. I was like, oh. No. <laughs> just don't do it. Because at least like I, I think Ghostbusters Afterlife and Jurassic World Dominion were like terrible but they're kind of fun to talk about terrible i don't know if the gray man will even be that no just avoid it <laughs> i don't know netflix anymore so there you go 
Yep. Anti-password sharing. <laughs> I can't leech off my partner's parents anymore. <laughs> it's gone. So. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Yeah, awesome. Were there any other ensembles you were thinking of? Well, there was one that I, I just ended up moving to next week because right. it fits next week's topic. So uh, stay tuned yeah. for that, listeners. Yeah, I was thinking Lord of the Rings maybe. I was thinking I mean, we've talked about Lord of the Rings lots. and That's a good example. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of it was just like, you know, like the other Altmans I could have done, but the shortcut scene was just kind of like, Honestly, part of the reason I just talked about it is because I used uh, some footage from it in the uh, AI art video. Right. And when I was getting that footage, I just ended up watching <clears> the whole scene. and was just, like, really taken with it and really reminded of, like, man, like, that's really great. So even though it didn't, doesn't really fit as a little moment, I was like, I don't care about talking <laughs> about it. It's so good. The, um, uh, the interesting thing was that when I was going through and trying to find, like, ensembles, I realized that I don't actually have that many ensemble movies which surprises me because it's it's something that I like a lot. Like when I think of the TV shows I watch, I mostly mm-hmm. like ones like things like Lost and West Wing that have lots of characters. When I read books, like the Game of Thrones series, for example, has tons of characters spread across, you know, all this whole land. And I love that. Like I just dig my teeth into that stuff. So, Right. I mean, the big one I probably didn't talk about and almost did was Do the Right Thing. Um yeah, that one would be. And specifically too. because I think the last time I talked about do the right thing on the show, it was the uh, the trio of men at the wall right. just talking smack, and like Sweet Dick Willie being one of them, the greatest <laughs> character in film history. And I was like, literally, if I wanted to talk about its ensemble qualities, I would want to talk about them again. Yeah. So it's like I can't just keep talking about Sweet Dick Willie. Yeah, I, I do feel like that one's got a very s- solid protagonist, though. It does. Like, it has the community like, aspect, for sure, but mm. Mookie is definitely... Well, once I, once I hatched on, like, this idea of, like, no protagonist... Yeah. It was, like, that kind of narrowed it to, like, you know, not just these three, but these three were the most clear-cut for me of, like... Shortcuts in particular is, like, there's no protagonist. You know, because, like, Armacord, like, you could argue Tita is. Traffic, I think you could make the argument that it's Michael Douglas, because he's a star... Or Benicio del Toro, because he's also the one who starts and ends the movie. Right. Um, even though he wins supporting, which maybe lends credence to it being, you know, there is no main character. But Shortcuts is like, I think in part because there's no main story either. It's just all these little vignettes that are all happening simultaneously. And like <laughs> some of them cross over sometimes. Um, oh, it's so good. Yeah, nice. All right. Well, do we want to do some listener feedback? Yeah, let's go for it. Sure. Okay, so a couple episodes back, we did the late 70s, and we only got one response there on Spotify. Uh, William has suggested Close Encounters, the line something... Yeah, I almost chose that. Yeah, something a little strange with Dad is the line he picked. The final one-shot, Mike almost kissing Linda at the wedding from The Deer Hunter... It's been ages since I've seen The Deer Hunter. I've been meaning to revisit. <clears throat> Part of why I haven't is because I only have it on DVD. I'm like, maybe I should just get the Blu-ray and rewatch it. <laughs> and then he picked The Brood. So there you go, some Chrome nice! for you. <laughs> yeah! Nola's Reveal, which means rocks. nothing to me. but <clears throat> Oh, that's good. <laughs> I approve, William. Good picks. Yeah, those were good. Um, 
yeah, biopics, we had quite a bit of feedback. Mm. So William, again, I think he's responded to every single one. He says uh, he loves The Last Emperor. and Oh, that's a good pick. And the perfect period film, Topsy Turvy. I still haven't seen that. No, I haven't either. I should, because I, <clears throat> I really like Mike Lee. Alex? He would have been a good ensemble pick, too, actually. Yeah. I haven't seen a whole Smaller lot of Smaller ensembles, but... Uh, Alex says he enjoys the John Adams, which is a miniseries, not... not. He says, te- not technically cinema. Well, you're right. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, Assez-vous? That's all I got for a name. Corsage? Do you know that one? It came out uh, last year. It's uh, Vicky Kreps. It's, um... She plays a queen. I don't remember which queen. Um, and it's kind of, I think it's supposed to be slightly anachronistic, but like not like really obviously, just there's some small stuff that's deliberate nonetheless. No, he says that I'm not familiar with the movie. He says it makes up or changes large parts of Elizabeth's life in order to make a greater thematic point. And he's, he hmm. says it's great. He recommends it. Nice. Thank you for the recommendation. Yeah. And Jay Davis says, <laughs> oh, you'll like this. He says, underrated peak Deke is Rango. So oh. it's catching on, Dan. It's catching on. Yes. Um, he says he stole most of his answers, so he'll just add No Country for Old Men and the silhouette scene from Skyfall to the peak Deeks. So he's responding more Those to peak Deke. <laughs> uh, honestly, I'm, I'm all in for peak Deke. Yeah. Those are good picks. It's quite, quite. And um, yeah, and on our movies we love that others hate... Justin says that Cam is wrong about Terminator Salvation. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There. So there you go, everybody. If you want to interact with us on Spotify, I will put up a question when we release this episode. You can tell us what our what your favorite ensemble movies and moments are. You can also tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds if you so wish. Mm-hmm. Email us. Yeah, email us, seconds at gmail.com. Comment on our web zones, all the good stuff. And if you want to hear more ranting about the Russo brothers, where yeah. can they do that? Uh, on youtube.com slash eyebrowcinema, my latest video, Art Without the Artist and Other Horrors from the Machine, which I actually don't talk about the Russos in, in, in the video itself, but as I was at the tail end of editing... They put out a, or they were being interviewed and they talked, or I think it was just Joe. Maybe Anthony disagrees. He's like, Joe, you're an idiot. But saying like, oh, AI art's so great. Like, imagine a world where like AI makes the films for you. And it was sickening to me. And it accelerated my plans for putting out that video. Because I was going to wait, try and get a sponsor. And I was like, I can't handle this. They got me mad. Um, And frankly, as an aside, but it is mind boggling to me. That his example was like, imagine you get home from work after a bad day, and you're like, I'm going to put my avatar in a rom-com with Marilyn Monroe. And it's like, you're literally like a hop, skip, and a jump away from like, AI is good because it can give you a sex bot. Like, that's that's where that is building to. And it's also like, pretty messed up to do that with someone who's, you know, again, there's like this long legacy of like, how her, you know... She, how she's been valued culturally and how her image has been exploited by people and how she's been exploited. And it's like, 
instead of framing that as like this dystopic thing, it's like, look how cool this would be. And yes, to be fair, he said a rom-com, not like sex bot, <laughs> but that's that's where this goes. And you have to be naive not to see that. Ugh. Oh, I got your riled up again. Uh, to quote Cooney in UHF, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, Brave New World. It has such punches in it. <laughs> All right, well, um, I guess we'll wrap her up there. So thanks for listening, everybody. If you're going to see Guardians 3 this weekend, have a good time. I hope it's good. And you too. Uh, I've been Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we'll talk at you next time. Thank you.